Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the new Russian offensive in the Donbass, the continuing siege in Mariupol, and the latest on how Vladimir Putin is trying to stabilize the Russian economy. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's April 19th, day 55, and today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Francis Sternley, assistant comment editor, and Louise Moon, the Telegraph's acting business features editor. I started by asking Dominic Nichols for the latest news from the Donbass. Yeah, hi David, hi everybody. So the Donbass is the eastern part of Ukraine. In 2014, when Russia mounted its its invasion into Crimea and to the east, the Russian-backed separatists in the in the east um, rose up and said that they wanted to um, live under under Moscow's rule, uh, change the boundaries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is where we saw the little green men. You may remember. So they were they were essentially um, Russian regular Russian troops, but they'd taken their um, badges and any in, insignia off, which is against the Geneva Convention, of course. Um, and so they were, they were unidentified green men, all, all supposed to be aggrieved locals who, who suddenly um, rose up. So the so the areas of Luhansk and Donetsk um, in the in the east, the Donetsk, um, in the Donbass, which is the, the Donetsk coal basin, it's where a lot of the heavy um, uh, of coal is is dug out from. So the Donetsk coal basin, shortened to Donbass in the in the east. That has been a uh, very contested area for eight years now. There's the uh, what's called the line of control, which is eff- effectively a front line, if you like. Um, I visited it a couple of years ago with uh, with Gavin Williamson when he when he was defence secretary. And this this area is heavily fortified. The Ukrainian positions are incredibly well dug in. Um, they they're almost if you picture an underground car park, basically heavily fortified, very good overhead cover, blast protection. 
Um, I mean, and and the and the surface um, the surface weapons, tanks and, and artillery and what have you, also similarly protected. Difficult to give them overhead protection, but from the sides and, and what have you, uh, the, the area is a, a very heavily engineered uh, area, um, very well defended at the moment, and that has about forty thousand. Or at the start of the start of the campaign, ten brigades UK, Ukrainian troops, about forty thousand of their best trained, best equipped uh, soldiers there on that line of control. Um, now, since Russia pulled out from the north of the country and the capital Kiev, they said that actually their objective all along was to uh, was to liberate the Donbass, um, which you know I think most people took to be an opportunistic explanation for their extremely poor performance in the north. Um, I mean, if it is your main objective, the, f- the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club and tell people you want to go to the Donbass, for God's sake. But anyway, um, so they're now concentrating on the east, but they're having to go through. Russia has to go through this period of reconstitution, which is fixing the broken vehicles, the broken soldiers and reorganizing the units before they can uh, before they can get stuck in to the Donbass. So we'll talk a little bit later about numbers, but that's where the pressure is going to come from. Very broadly, Russia has the opportunity here to squeeze the Donbass from the north, from the Russian border and from around Kharkiv, from the east, which is already Russian separatist held areas, and from the south. Um, and the the Ukrainians are able at the moment, they're not able to do much from the east. They are currently trying to cut the supply lines from the north and they are still holding down about eight or nine battalion tactical groups. That's about six or seven hundred men in each. Um, eight or nine Russian battalion tactical groups still involved in the fight in, in Mariupol. So the available forces, and as I said, we'll, we'll talk numbers a little bit later, but the available forces for Russia in this region and the time they've got to reconstitute and get there and be in a position to do something against a very, very well-defended enemy is, is limited. But I'll, I'll just pause there. And this offensive is uh, up against a kind of self-imposed clock. Um, Francis, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the the, uh, the, the deadline of what appears to be a deadline of May the 9th. Yes, thank you, David, and thank you to everyone listening. Uh, I think this is something that cannot be overestimated in its significance, uh, this date of May the 9th. Uh, We've spoken previously on this podcast about the Moscow Victory Day parade, and we understand that this date is essentially what Putin is aiming for some sort of symbolic victory to have been achieved by. Why? Well, it's often used as the or that the strength of a regime is measured by the success of this parade, where it'd be very familiar, I'm sure, to many listeners, where you see all of the uh, military munitions and soldiers marching through Red Square. Not quite sure where they're going to get all of these soldiers and munitions from, given the scale of, of, of those that have been lost in, in Ukraine. But that's a, that's a different matter. But it would appear that Putin has told his generals that essentially there must be successes in the Donbass by May 9th. And I think that this is why we are seeing this, this, this renewed offensive now. Realistically, I'm not sure the Russians are logistically prepared for such a military um, um, drive after the, 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 well, I think it's fair to say defeats of, of, of recent weeks. But clearly that would explain why so, so quickly after those defeats we're seeing this shift in strategy, because as I say, the generals have to be able to prove that there's been some significance. Let's just imagine for a second what, what they are thinking and what they are seeking to achieve. 
realistically, they're going for the Donbass because they want to be able to claim at the end of this conflict that they are um, have secured and have liberated Lehesk and Donetsk from these uh, these Nazis in inverted commas. And I think what we're likely to see is that if they are still holding these territories comfortably um, as May the 9th approaches, that they will then seek to hold... Um, more referendums there and perhaps even referendums in Mariupol and Curzon and claim that these places have requested to formally join uh, Russia. And uh, and then this can be the sort of symbolic victory, the tactical geographical victory that Putin so craves. Um, I say referendum in inverted commas because we all know that what would actually take place would be a uh, a forced referendum where no doubt the votes would be already pre-counted or people would be uh, be forced to uh, to vote in particular ways. But I think that's part of the strategy that we are seeing on 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 the part of the uh, of of the Russians here. Um, just a couple of other things I wanted to to, to to flag. Um, we know that the Ukrainians are going for the supply lines. Uh, it appears that the Russians were trying to encircle um, the Ukrainian forces, and yet the, the Ukrainians are actually attacking in the centre of that encirclement in an attempt to sort of cut off the supply lines joining the two um, contingents of Russian forces uh, in the Donbass. So I just think it's worth flagging that this is not just, you know, that the Ukrainians have, have uh, drawn defensive lines and are just waiting for the Russians to come. There are also offensive manoeuvres um, that are taking place, and I might mention the, the, uh, the Moskva, the boat that sank um, in, in recent days as well later on, um, because I think that's relevant to this as well. And just the other thing I would I would point out is obviously this this is a um, a, a battle that has been talked about much in terms of the context of the atrocities that were committed in Bucha and other places. And we've talked very um, in depth um, last week about just the horrors there and the extent to which this is perhaps being committed by Russian forces acting on their own initiative as opposed to being commanded from the top. Well, worrying development that we're hearing over the course of the weekend is that Putin has made the 64th Motor Rifle Brigade a guard brigade. And this is the brigade that um, we believe was involved in the execution of civilians and prisoners of, prisoners of war in Bucha. And so if he is commending this and is giving it an, an honorific title, um, which would appear to be the case, then this is effectively a mandating of atrocities at the very highest level of the Russian state. Um, so I think, again, that's not something that really has been commented upon. And we don't even know yet if it's definitely happened. But if it is true, then, then obviously it's significant in terms of the doubling down um, that, that, that Putin his, um, and his acolytes are, are doing in, in, in sense of, um, of, of mandating the atrocities and the terrible crimes that have taken place in recent weeks. But I'll, I'll pause there. Thanks, Francis. Just on this, uh, the Ukrainian government said yesterday that the battle for the Donbass has begun. What, what's actually happened in the past uh, 24 hours? Well, there's been a huge amount of artillery duels, long-range missile strikes, not only in the Donbass, but across the whole country. Now, you could say that this is part of a shaping uh, operation to um, to start softening up any resupply lines or, or interdicting deep, deep um, targets of uh, any maintenance areas and so on and so forth. Or, or you could say it's uh, Russia under the new you know, General Vornikov, who's now the overall theatre commander, just reverting to, to type, basically, um, out of ideas, essentially sort of channeling his 1980s England football manager route one just lob artillery around the place um, so we don't we don't quite know what has started um, Alexei 
Arestovich, who's, the, who's President Zelensky's advisor, says that there has been pressure in the Donbass, in the areas of Rubizhna, um, Papava and Sever, uh, Severodonetsk. Please, please excuse my um, pronunciation there. And these are, these are towns between Izium, which is the gateway to the Donbass, uh, and Luhansk I- itself. So in the area, there, there, is, there is pressure um, as Russia seek to push west from the line of control uh, to envelop the um, Ukrainian forces there. Um, and uh, uh, Mr. Arestovich also said that there's in Zaporizhia to the south, there's another um, another massing there. And he said that this is the this is Russia. Uh, they finished uh, accumulating their combat ready reserve forces for the push into the Donbass. And he put a figure on it of about 25,000 troops. Not sure if that's the new troops who are, who are there or although all those available. Um, Russia would hope. Well, Russia needs significantly more than that if there's. If there were 40,000 Ukrainian troops dug in at the start of this uh, war, on the uh, current phase of the war on February the 24th, that Russia, uh, conventional military thought is you need a, an advantage of three to one attacker over a defender. Um, those better, those analysts much better than me that know, that know the area much better than me would say that given the, given the state of the, uh, the extensive defence networks and the ground there, it's probably more like five to one. So Russia just simply haven't got the numbers um, at the moment, they, they may well do. They are trying to reconstitute, as I said earlier. Um, but there's a slight, slight pressure on various towns in the east. A lot of artillery still being thrown around and long-range missiles, um, but still not enough forces in the area for any any uh, sort of mass breakthrough. I mean, we talked we talked a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, about about how you would be smarter to attack these these air or to, to conduct offensive operations using the the, the, the western concept of the, the manoeuvrist approach which doesn't just mean moving about it's a it's a sort of nimble uh, mindset it's thinking of the, doing the unexpected trusting your subordinates allowing them to use their initiative and exploit weaknesses and, and uh, back up success and that kind of thing so Russia with a smaller force uh, they, they may be trying to do that um, with those numbers it would be extremely unlikely they'd be able to do much at all and given their given the display they put on in the first few weeks of the war it would be un, unexpected for them to suddenly transition into a into a um a sort of premier league uh, combined arms army where where they're able to seamlessly integrate infantry with armor and engineers and artillery and all and all the rest of it, all the various uh, different bits and pieces of the orchestra so yeah so the the, the Comments from President Zelensky that the war for the Donbass has already started. I mean, he's not—he's not wrong, and you know, who am I to tell him what's happening in his own country? But um, I, I would have thought he's—he's he's just gently applying pressure there to the international community to say, "Come on, I, I need some weapons." And we'll talk a little bit later about what weapons are on the way and what weapons are needed. But I think this is—we haven't seen any large-scale ground. Um, Maneuver ground offensives yet with maneuver. I think um, President Zelensky is just is keeping the heat on the Western um, audience with his comments there. We can certainly pick that up later. Thanks, Dom. Just before we move to uh, bringing Louise in to talk a little bit about some of the economic developments, can we just touch upon what's happening in Mariupol and specifically the Avostal steel plant? 
Yes, well, um, we've talked, as I say, uh, in, in many of the recent podcasts following Mariupol very closely. We've spoken about why that is. It's, it's the strategic city in terms of linking, um, in, in, in terms of land, the forces in the east with the forces in Crimea from the Russian perspective. So, of course, this has been of huge significance um, to both the Ukrainian and Russian forces. We expected it to fall over the weekend. It is still holding out. And we understand that the Ukrainian defenders are in a steel plant. And I just want to, to mention that um, there is, uh, there's been numerous uh, comparisons with certain cities holding out and the Battle of Stalingrad in the Second World War. And it's, it's a rather curious thing that um, the very last German soldiers who held out in Stalingrad um, when encircled by the Russians uh, did so in a tractor factory. And so it's just one of those, those curious parallels that, that we are seeing um, where perhaps that historical analogy is, is not stretched too far um, in terms of the devastation that has, that has been wrought there. Um, and also just one other thing on, on the military uh, developments over the weekend. Um, we obviously spoke at length about the Muskva last week, um, the, the, the boat which has, has sunk. Um, and we've been doing some more research on that um, in recent um, days and even hours. And uh, it's noteworthy, I think, that we still don't know how many soldiers were sunk with the ship and have been killed. Um, I think that's significant because uh, it suggests that those numbers may be quite high and um, the Russian state hasn't wanted to admit to those numbers. We believe it could be several hundred, but as I say, that is unverified. But I, I just wanted to, one final point on that, uh, just comment on the sheer cost of, of, I mean, weapons are extremely expensive, as Dom has spoken about at length um, in, in previous episodes. But just to, to put it into perspective, the sinking of this ship uh, will cost around 700 million US uh, or perhaps 750 million US dollars to replace. These are extortionately expensive uh, um, um, armaments. And uh, when you lose them, you know, this is something that, that you really feel, um, not only in the strategic sense, but also economically in terms of replacing them. And they have been enough in the past to seriously weaken leaders at home and even trigger revolutionary activities when people realise the scale of said losses. But I, maybe I'll touch on that in a later segment later. There's certain historical parallels I'd like to bring in, but, but I think we should, uh, should move on probably for now. <laughs> Thank you very much, Francis. Yes, well, talking economics, let's bring in Louise Moon. Um, Louise, there's been quite a few things developing over the past few days. So today, Putin has banned Russian companies from foreign stock markets. What does this mean? Why did he do it? And as always, the question from us is, what does this show us about the strength or the lack of strength of the Russian economy? Hi. Yeah, so that happened this morning. So him banning Russian companies from foreign stock exchanges. So that has been slowing down in recent years um, anyway, Russian companies going abroad to list. However, obviously, there are multi-million pound companies in London. For example, there's huge miners um, that are listed here. So Putin signed off legal amendments that would make these companies delist. Um, this is essentially further cutting himself off from the global financial system. Um, one, I think, I think there's two points here to make. One is him turning more economically inward, so making Russia uh, more of its own financial system. Um, in, in a similar light, I guess you could compare it in a, way, in a way to the Chinese system, which is cut off in some ways and in many ways from, from the global economic system. Um, and then also, secondly, it's Putin trying to stem up the economy, which has obviously been battered by sanctions. So those, those are the two reasons, essentially, why he's doing it. And it's kind of moving Russia more towards being a prior away, as I said, away from the whole global system. 
um, and and bringing bringing money back. So so far, reactions wise um, have been relatively minimal because obviously this only happened this morning. But one Russian mining giant, EN Plus, um, which is listed in London, has said that it's seeking legal advice. And interestingly, they said that Putin's orders gives it just five days to delist, which is a pretty short amount of time, obviously, to delist a whole stock. Um, and others are, their, their stocks are plummeting, I mean, even further than they, than they already have since the war. So another um, big mining company with Russian, Russian operations, Petropavlovsk, um, is down is down around more than 20%. It's been down up to 25% this morning. Um so obviously this comes, as I've said, um, Russia has been hit massively by sanctions and this is Putin trying to stem up to have more money to to fuel its war. Um, interestingly also, Putin seems to also be making, trying to make sure the businesses are on his side, Russian businesses, and ramping up that nationalisation. So it's been reported that he's going to meet executives and owners of big businesses tomorrow. So, so far, the agenda of that is not known and, and the people he's meeting is across a variety of industries. Um, but he's continuing to, continuing to insist that the West sanctions have failed to ruin the economy. Um, and, you know, he's getting all these businesses on side um, to ramp up to ramp up the it's the, the domestic economy um and obviously this is all just in reaction to sanctions essentially and him turning further economically inward just talking about sanctions um in well on today's telegraph website matthew lynn one of our one of our editors has written a really interesting piece about um basically making the argument or positing the argument that if germany won't stop buying russian gas it should face sanctions too um it was a fascinating piece. Louise, could you talk to us a little bit about it? What, what's the argument and, and I, I guess, crucially, the background here? Yeah, it was a really interesting piece and I and I'd recommend everyone reading it. His argument, so Russian energy imports into, into Europe have been, as we've discussed on this podcast, um, a key focus throughout this war. It's one of the things that Europe, if, if Europe were to completely cut off their reliance on Russia, that could... I mean, curtail the Russian economy, which is already suffering due to other sanctions. And so this piece argues that despite Europe having, you know, cut off, I mean, tons of companies have pulled away um, and it's reduced its reliance from Russia in other ways, it hasn't fully cut imports on oil. And, it, and, and Matthew Lynn um, particularly talks about Germany because they are the most reliant European economy on Russia for energy. Um, he is saying that essentially Germany continuing to buy oil from Russia is unacceptable. And he quotes that overall EU purchases are giving Russia 800 million euros a day, um, which is inadvertently essentially fueling their war efforts. Um, And so then he makes that argument, as you're saying, that that, um, other countries should sanction Germany. So, you know, the UK, anything it buys from Germany, it shouldn't. Um, or it should, or it could put tariffs on it to make Germany push Germany essentially into um, into not buying Rus- not buying Russian energy, um, and yeah, I mean it's just an interesting argument. Whether I mean that that would be a pretty major stance, but it essentially just highlights how how much of an impact sanctioning um, oil and gas from Russia would have, and how much that potentially needs to happen to make to make Putin 
potentially to, to have an effect to make people potentially stop. And also this morning, uh, kind of on a related note, so France um, has called on other European nations to support fresh energy sanctions. So its finance minister um, said this morning that it was more than ever necessary, more than ever to ban Russian oil. Um, because, as as we've said, it would cut off a key source of revenue for for the Kremlin, and he has said that Macron supports that move. So he told a French radio station this morning. He said, "I hope that in weeks to come we can convince our European partners to stop importing Russian oil." So this all comes in that context that the Europe, that Europe has been a lot more reluctant. The US and the UK have said they would phase it out. Europe is being a lot slower due to its reliance. It's so intertwined with Russia. Its economies are so intertwined. Um, and so Matthew Lynn is, is making that point and, and making that point that, for, that for, for, for Germany to take a stance would be the most important of all, really. Louise, may I just ask you a question on the sanctions, please? Sorry to sort of grab, grab you on the spot like this, but is it, uh, can I just ask a question about, um, about the, the Kremlin's revenue? Yeah, no, of course. So... Well, so Matthew's that that um, number that I quoted from Matthew Lynn's piece, I thought was really interesting. That he's saying that just from energy alone, that there's 800 million a day is being sent straight to Moscow, and essentially, at the moment, that does seem to be one of their main sources um, of of income, really, that is fueling fueling this war. So there's it's quite interesting. So at the moment, because of sanctions, so because of the financial side of sanctions, but Moscow can't access over half of it's got 600 billion US dollars worth of reserves abroad and it can't access more than half of that because of sanctions which if it could access that that would help it support the ruble so that's why it's um enforcing you know capital controls to stem money leaving it's Putin's banning you know delistings to bring people back in and there's a host of restrictions being put in place because it is does need that money um Russia is also, interestingly, planning to launch legal action to recover some foreign currency reserves that have been frozen by the West. So it's definitely in, I mean, a, a massive, I was going to say tricky situation, but I think that's a big understatement. Um, so these sanctions are taking hold. And, and in answer to your question, Russia is suffering in terms of its reserves. And that's why it's putting all these places, um, all these things in place. But energy is, is the key one that is stemming up the, the Kremlin's revenue, essentially. Yeah, because before the war, weren't we talking in terms of, I, th- I remember, $650 billion worth of foreign reserves or Russian um, money held overseas. Um, and then we see, uh, to my mind, all the different numbers swimming around. I think Liz Truss a couple of weeks ago said that she was freezing $600 billion, And I, could, I just can't quite work it out. So so you're saying that, that Russia has $600 billion of foreign reserves and are only able to access half of that? From what I understand, I think that is the case. Um, yeah, so can't access more than half of of its over 600 billion in reserves. So maybe that is the 650 billion. Francis, I know you wanted to come in and talk about one of these points. Yes, I, I just um, I think it's an interesting point in the article that we were talking about there about this idea about should we be sanctioning Germany given the amount of money that they are sending on a daily basis to uh, to, to Russia for its oil and gas. Um, I, I think it's a very, as I say, it's an interesting argument, and I we've obviously been very critical um, on this uh, on this podcast of the German policy, as have many uh, uh, world leaders. Um, essentially, I don't think it would be possible for Putin to be able to be fighting this war were it not for the vast amount of income that they are receiving 
speaking from Germany. Um, but I do, uh, I would not go as far as to, uh, to be sanctioning Germany for the simple reason that I think one of the most surprising things out of this conflict, certainly from the perspective of the Kremlin, has been Western unity. This has brought the West together in a way that um, Putin, I don't think, believed was, was, was possible. Um, I think actually, to some extent, the West as well, I don't think, believed that we would see such unity. Yes, there are divisions within Europe, particularly between the French and, uh, and the Germans, and obviously uh, the British to a certain extent, and, and, and several of the Eastern European uh, nations have been far more uh, critical vocally of, of, of um, certain Western powers' policies towards Russia up to this point than, than, than our, our own government has. Um, but, but ultimately, there has been a, as I said before, I think this, is, this, this war has given Europe a sense of purpose again, or at least the West a sense of purpose again, in a sort of existential way. When you have such clear affronts to certain values of democracy and certain lessons that are supposed to have been learned in the 20th century about what we allow on European soil, particularly around um, uh, never again and atrocities and the like, um, when you see such clear affronts of that, such clear breaking of international norms, uh, the West is suddenly feels that actually it does have a sense of purpose once more. And so I, I think it would be a shame to sacrifice that um, that unity, which is clear, sending a very clear signal to, to more autocratic regimes around the world that the West is still a force um, to be reckoned with. I think it would be a shame to sacrifice that um, um, in terms of punishing, inverted commas, Germany for its mistakes so far. The more important, what we should be doing more importantly is, is continuing the pressure on Germany as a sort of a, a brother or a sister as part of the broader Western alliance um, and, and helping it to, to, uh, to wean off uh, its, its, its requirement on Russian energy um, and, if necessary, provide financial supports to help it to do so. Uh, I know that's something that Olaf Scholz was discussing with, with Boris Johnson when he was in Germany, uh, sorry, in, in Downing Street, um, I think it was only last week, wasn't it? So um, I think that's the, the way to do it rather than, um, than sanctioning Germany. But, but it makes a very interesting point, I think. And, and one that's you know, worth discussing as part of our broader strategy. Louise, just one more thing from you. I know there are some IMF stats out later. Could you talk to us about them and what, what will they show? Yes, yeah, so at 2pm, there's some fresh stats out from the IMF. So that's essentially going to show the their predictions for the economic impact of um, Russia and from Russia's war on global economies. So it breaks down, you know, by region and by country. Um, obviously, I mean, that is expected to show a hit to global economies. But past that, um, that will all come out at 2pm. So there will be some articles up on the Telegraph website past that and in our Business Live blog as well. Um, interestingly, also, there's a meeting, this this is related, there's a meeting later this week of G20 finance chiefs and they are going to use that, it's been reported, that they're going to use that to send the message to Russia that it is fully responsible for the global economic fallout um, since the war. So on a related note, I guess that is understandably and clearly what, um, what is expected from those statistics later today. Thank you very much, Louise. And talking about that, I think we can move into a little section talking about some of the diplomatic uh, changes and developments over the past few days. Louise, you mentioned France pushing other European nations to support a ban on Russian oil, but there have been some other developments too. Uh, Emmanuel Macron admitted on Monday that his dialogue with Putin had stalled. Um, and we've had some, some interesting developments, I thought, with China telling Russia it will continue to increase quote, strategic coordination, unquote, with it, regardless of international volatility. Francis and Dom, um, what can we make of these developments? 
Well, I think it's obviously very significant that Emmanuel Macron has publicly admitted that that uh, dialogue with Putin has has broken down. I've spoken previously about when I was in Paris and talking to journalists there and how this had played actually surprisingly well amongst the French public. Uh, that him him flying over to to Moscow and other places trying to. Uh, to persuade uh, Putin to stand down when I think, um, it, you know, from, from most observers, certainly in other countries, it appeared a rather naive strategy given Putin's clear intention to go to war. Um, but regardless, him, him admitting this, I think, is, uh, is, is you know, uh, a, 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 as I say, a moment of significance, at least from, from drawing a line under what for many commentators seemed a, a rather self-aggrandising policy on his part um, in the run-up to an election. Of course, we will get the result of that election on the 24th of April, um, and that will potentially have severe ramifications for um, for the war if Marine Le Pen does manage to, to um, achieve a surprise victory. Then we've spoken before about her scepticism towards the European project, in inverted commas, and um, also more supportive statements to towards um, Vladimir Putin's regime in the past. And so that may well have some some, some significant ramifications for, for, for long term. It seems unlikely that she will pull that off as things currently spanned. But, but you know, we've been there before in, 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 in many previous referendums and elections. So um, it would be madness to, to dismiss it out of hand. Um, you mentioned China there. Again, that has been the great unknown quantity in this crisis, I would argue. Um, it's not been, I think, I think it's fair to say that China have, in a sense, been playing both sides diplomatically. They've certainly been uh, not gone as far as condemning Russia um, in, in, and have in, in fact made overtures towards sort of supporting perhaps some of their, their rights to be going to war in Ukraine. Um, but at the same time, um, it, it, it's, it, they have, have clearly not gone as far um, as some people feared in terms of providing military support and, and have still been making certain remarks publicly in diplomatic circles about um, uh, sort of, you know, trying to find a peaceful solution to the conflict. And of course, that's very much in their, in their um, uh, interests. They don't want to isolate the West when the West gives them so much uh, uh, um, money and income. And they also don't want to isolate their geopolitical ally um, in Russia. So um, again, they, they are in a sense um, trying to, to, um, uh, to, to not... Um, do anything that uh, that upsets too upsets the apple cart too much, and that's that sort of China's geopolitical strategy in a nutshell. Really, is to, is to play this sort of almost this centrist card. But at some point, of course, the danger is from a Western perspective that at some point they are so powerful that they no longer need to play the West anymore, um, and and then we are in potentially a very t- uh, tricky tricky uh, diplomatic situation. But um, I'm sure Dom has a few thoughts on this. Um, well, not that many, to be honest. All I'd say is on on. The French angle, I think we, you just have to look at everything through the, the, the lens of the French election at the moment. Um, I think Mr. Macron made a bit of a mistake going for so long. He got a try, but he went, he went for a bit too long, I think, um, trying to push the diplomatic path with, uh, with Putin. I think it became uh, a little bit embarrassing, a little bit, looked a little bit silly, and that would have been reflected pro- probably uh, in some of the poll numbers last week. Um, so I think he's he just changed tack there. So, so you know, sen- sensible that he comes out and says the the talks have stalled. Uh, nice way of saying it. I think I think you know my when I had discussions about my pay review, the, the talks stalled all the time. It wasn't through lack of effort on my part, but there we go. Um, so I think it, it's just a, a, another lens through which to to look at the French election. We'll know more. Uh, obviously, no more th- this time next week um, after the, the results, and and there could be a very a very shaky. A shake the snow dome moment um, if Marine Le Pen gets in. On China, it's an, it's another shake the snow dome moment 
a little bit. Um, so China, uh, they've said they're going to coordinate, uh, maintain coordination with Russia. I mean, that, that that's a, a fairly ambiguous phrase. It's not cooperation. It's not assistance, all the rest of it. So coordination um, is is about as about as vanilla as you as you, you'd want to you'd want to get to say something without saying anything. Um, but of course, China wants to wants to change the way that the world is run. Um, disagrees with the post-war settlement. Wants to change that the what what China sees as a very Western-led, U.S.-led international order. So that China is, as Francis says, stepping a delicate line between. Um, full-throated support for some pretty heinous activity by Russia in um, Ukraine that's now on public record, but also not not wanting to, to clamp down on this and use its diplomatic and economic and probably social heft to bring this war to a close. Because actually anything that, that undermines the international order and the way things are done now... Um, they can see an advantage in, and I mean, they're, they're, I can't, I'm not suggesting there's some hugely considered, thought through strategy here that they're trying to um, trying to tip the world on its head. But at the moment, it's in their interest just to see where this goes, just to see how much power there is in the UN and these uh, security bodies such as NATO and so on and so forth, and and how much um, how much harm um, a group of countries coming together and fighting on an economic front can do. So. China are trading that trading that line between being quite interested in seeing how the how the world order can change, but without bit coming out and standing next to next to Russia, supporting and endorsing everything that we've seen uh, in Ukraine today. We obviously haven't spoken um, since Thursday, and, and I'm aware that there's quite a f- there's therefore quite a few days we're trying to catch up on. Uh, Louise, Dom, and Francis, is there anything we haven't mentioned before we before I find a, a, a listener question for you? Just one other thought I have, just while we're on the subject of politics and war and the relationship that that one can have on the other. Um, We've obviously made many historical comparisons on this podcast. And one that I would just flag what we're having in the paper tomorrow and maybe online by tonight, but it will certainly be online by tomorrow. It's a piece by the historian Jeremy Black, where he talks about 1905 and some of the parallels with 1905 and the Russo-Japanese war and the implications that that war had on uh, on, on the Russian state. Um, so effectively, for those who don't know, 1905 is significant in Russian history for two reasons. One it is uh, the, as I say, this, this war with Japan, where uh, military um, ships effectively sailed seven months uh, around the world from Russian ports uh, to Japan. They were expecting an easy victory against a, 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 uh, a, a Japan, which was seen as part of the sort of the backward um, parts of the world and they received a not only a bloody nose but a humiliation the russian fleet was sunk very quickly and of course this has echoes of of the sinking of the muskva perhaps um, last week so it was the destruction of prestige um, militarily which you could argue that we are seeing in ukraine it also underlined the significance of the technology race at the time um, and how effectively as i say japan had 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 won in that race and one could argue that in a sense the ukrainians by being um, given these modern weapons by the west have also won a form of technology race in the sense that uh the the the, the, the 
Russian artillery and Russian tanks, etc., have not been able to withstand the quality of, 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 of high defensive weapons that the British and other um, countries have given them. But lastly, it shows the tendency of, of Russian leaders to, to dig in. Putin is clearly doing that at the moment um, in, and is, is doubling down on, on the war in Ukraine. The Tsar did the same in 1905. Um, he, he was very reluctant to, to, uh, to, to sign peace deals. Um, and actually, I believe it was Theodore Roosevelt who actually finally settled um, uh, in one of the very first um, actions of where the American president acted on the sort of the world stage as a diplomat. And I believe he won the Nobel Peace Prize. But um, I'd need to need to check that. Um, but anyway, um, the, uh, the the other interesting point on this is the impact that this war had um, in, in at home. 1905, to those who study Russian history, is also symbolic for the uh, first uh, uh, sort of attempt of a revolution by those elements in the state that were unhappy with the uh, with the Tsar's rule, and uh, and uh, it, it failed. But it arguably precipitated the revolutions that then came in 1917. Many of the seeds that were sown then eventually exploded again in 19 in 1917. So, I just wanted to mention that there are certain echoes here um, with 1905, and of course, Putin may well be aware of those echoes and not want to make the same mistakes. But even so, I think it's worthy of comment that, um, uh, in the very simple sense, that when you have mush- um, defeats abroad, particularly by enemies that you expect to be at walkovers, it usually has very profound implications at home, and and. and that way may well be something that we don't see in the short term for Putin, but as I say, it may have, have, have planted several seeds that we'll see germinate in the months and years to come. Thanks, Francis. Uh, Louise and Dom, anything else to mention before I go to our question from our listener? Yeah, for me, I think it's just worth pausing for a moment. If we're about to enter a new phase with this attack on the Donbass, let's just have a look at the numbers, just so, so we're as clear as we can hope to be. So Western officials say that Russia invaded Ukraine with 125 battalion tactical groups, battalion tactical group numbering about 600 or 700 soldiers in each. So 125 battalion tactical groups at the start. Um, two weeks ago, uh, Western officials were saying that 38 of those battalion tactical groups have been rendered non-combat effective. They're now saying that 22 are in Belarus and Russia uh, reconstituting. Uh, and they say that there is now 76 battalion tactical groups in Ukraine, of which over the weekend, 11 um, fresh fresh groups were added. So fresh troops, all, always good. No military commander would turn, turn, turn down the opportunity to have fresh troops. Whether these are conscripts or untried, untested uh, troops, as as we saw, got mangled around Kiev, we don't know. But, but you know, there, there's another eleven in there. But seventy six from a start point six weeks ago of one hundred twenty five is a is a startling number. And don't forget, of course, one hundred twenty five. The vast majority of those battalion tactical groups were. Um, what, what we would call teeth arm in, in the Western doctrine. So uh, infantry, armour, those kind of things. Very, very small logistic footprint. And we, and we saw what happened there. You know, they just got, they just outran their supply lines. Ukraine were, were very, very good at mounting these mobile ambushes to, to snip off the, the logistic tail and then just take the tanks out at, at will. Um, for comparison, um, Gulf, Gulf 2, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the Western-led um, alliance was about the same number in terms of in terms of actual soldiers on the on the ground about the same number that went into Iraq, um, but only a third of that force was was teeth arm with, with infantry armor. It was had a much much bigger um, logistic and engineer and support and signal and medical and intelligence backup. So a very different a very different model going into this 
campaign. But the headline figures, Russia started with 125 battalion tactical groups and US uh, Department of Defense said over the weekend they've now got 76 in theater. I keep saying about the numbers, they just haven't got the numbers to for for the maximalist aims um, that they're that they're after. Which means, to my mind, that they're going to rely on a lot of long range artillery and missiles, and there's a lot of misery for the civilian population to come. But quite startling statistics, I thought. Thanks, Tom. Uh, so this question comes from uh, Robin van der Beek from the Netherlands. Uh, he talks about how there are reports around about uh, shortages of ammunition for the Ukrainian army and western allies making noises that you know their supplies of these weapons that we're giving to ukraine are not endless and he says can you uh, pay some attention to how much time it takes to make this ammunition so javelins stingers and tanks and so on and, and what does that mean for the ukrainians i mean we've described um this is now my commentary but we've we've, we've talked about this weapons arms race for the, for the next stage of the war so i think this question plays into that yeah i mean most militaries have have a good inventory of of spares and uh, additional weapons or they should do unfortunately it's one of those areas that is uh, not very exciting it's all a bit unsexy so that when you get a big dollop of cash from your government ho ho a small dollop of cash from your from your government you generally then try and do um, the new stuff you want to go and buy all the new technology etc etc just having the, the the J4 guy, the loggy guy, say, ah, we need some more um, you know, weapons on the on the rails. We we need a few more uh, X Y Z, a few more blankets. Um, you know, they rarely get listened to. So you can, if you go through your ammunition at the at the rate that uh, well, it looks like both sides have been going through in, in this war, then you it's, you're going to come a cropper, and then you rely on your on your um, sovereign defence industrial base or or our allies and, and partners. Uh, so there will come a time. I mean, I'm going to be completely honest. I don't know what the numbers are for, for Russia and uh, Ukraine. You can read a lot into why Russia is using a lot of unguided munitions because we think their precision-guided munition stock is is heavily depleted. You can look at why... Um, so the Mosfar, uh, we assess, has been sunk with two Neptune and ship missiles. You had the, the landing ship in Berdyansk a couple of weeks ago that was hit... Um, these these things are like are very powerful in and of themselves for a tactical action, but also in terms of the information campaign. So you might say, well, why aren't there more of them? Why aren't Ukraine? Why isn't Ukraine trying to sink the entire seven, um, uh, Black Sea Fleet? There's only 19, 19 capital ships there. They, why, why don't we go for them? So you might say, well, perhaps they haven't got uh, enough munitions, or these things don't just they don't just arrive at their target by luck. You need a lot of um, sighting systems, aiming systems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they, they, it may well be that they just don't have um, the whole system uh, in the numbers that they would wish. I think when it comes down to industrial capacity, um, I think there there are. I think Ukraine is better placed in terms of support from the West, if political will notwithstanding. Um, but NLAW, for example, the next generation light anti-tank weapon, the Anglo-Swedish uh, weapon that's made um, made by Talis in Belfast, the old Shorts uh, missile factory in Belfast. Um, I, I'm, I'm told that the numbers there are, are not worrying yet. And then it's always a question of um, prioritising or discussing with those those clients who have, who have got the next fifty coming off the line. Um, quite quite whether you could do a deal on on those. So yes, there, there of course there is an industrial edge to this, um, which is when, such as in the Second World War, if you turn your entire economy round to supporting this, uh, supporting the effort, 
that that stage has not been met yet, not by Ukraine. Very interesting noises coming out of Russia about what they're going to do if um, if some of their high end, or some of their not just the high end equipment, but but just generally. Um, their equipment is not uh, is in short supply. There's a very interesting article in The Economist, actually, about why so few Russian soldiers and and vehicles have night fighting capability, why Russia seems to be very poor at fighting at night or prefers not to fight at night. And that comes down to industrial capacity. So, um, yeah, good article there in The Economist if you want to, want to have a look on that that side. That sort of fleshes out in one one particular area the the, um, the issue we're talking about here. Thank you very, very much, Dom. So I think we're coming to the end of this. Uh, Louise and Dom, can we have your final thoughts of what to look, to, what to, look uh, to in the next few days and across the week? I'll go first. Um, I think, as we've spoken about, the key thing is to look at the foreign listings. And if this happens to the extent that Putin wants it to happen and how it happens. Um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the companies has said that Putin orders means it has five business days to comply with delisting from foreign stock exchanges so it will be interesting just to see how that plays out it's worth keeping an eye on um for me it's the the new equipment going in so have a look at um us has said it's going to supply 18 155 millimeter howitzers to uh to ukraine um it shouldn't take too long to train them because they're already very proficient on the 152 millimeter howitzer um and they've also said, USDOD said that they would be doing that training um, in the coming days, so this this week, in Eastern Europe. So this is going to be very interesting to see see how how far. I mean, there'll be there'll be noise out of Moscow, of course there will be, but but how how serious they are about um, Western nations taking a, a much more active role, actually training Ukrainian troops in these systems outside of the of the theatre of conflict. So I think that will be that will be interesting to watch. Um, the USDOD guy said said it would take quote not very long uh, unquote to to train Ukraine on these um, on these new artillery systems. Um, I think, as we've said, it's it's a race for Russia to try and regenerate and re- reconstitute its forces, and a race for Ukraine to get Western supplied munitions. Um, that I think is what the Battle of the Donbass is going to hinge on. So this phrase "not very long" is likely to be interpreted very differently in various in various different capitals. But uh, yeah, we, sh- we shall see. Wait for the reaction from Moscow this week to, to training Ukrainians outside of their country. Thanks very much, Dom. Francis, would you like the final word? Thank you, David. Um, so uh, just while we're on the subject of, of, of military and history, I know it's been rather heavy on those subjects today, but I think it's there's one other thing I would just um, flag to readers to read, because so to listeners to read. Um, I was editing the paper for, for today, so it's in today's paper, but it's also online. It's by the historian um, Robert Toombs, who I commissioned to write a piece about how the war in Ukraine sheds a new light on the tragedies of the last century and how the invasion has echoes of the horrors of the 1930s and 40s, but also quashes some myths around around that era. So just very briefly on the echoes, obviously we've, we, this, this conflict underlines the extent to which leadership matters, just like Churchill um, and his defiance in, in the Second World War ultimately had profound ramifications of the conflict. I think we can both agree, or all agree, sorry, should I say, that um, Zelensky's leadership may well have been the, the turning point, as it were, for, for Ukraine to continue the resisting. And, and so we're seeing a, a parallel there. Um, and there are several others that he talks about in the article. But in terms of the myths, and this is what I think is is, is most interesting, um, 
we've believed due to the events of the 20th century that, um, you know, it would be possible again for a large army echoing the German Wehrmacht to perform a blitzkrieg across Europe very swiftly. Um, we now, I think this is, this is clearly being questioned um, that the, and, and, and we're needing to reassess um, just the capabilities of, 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 of the German, uh, German army in, 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 in the, in that period. Robert Toombs argues that the German army was actually perhaps improvising rather desperately um, because it believed it was inferior um, and that uh, Britain and France didn't want a long war and so they were simply trying to they were lucky in a sense and they were lucky because there were these divisions within Europe about how best to to handle um, uh, uh, German expansionism uh, in we were talking earlier on about the unity that's been expressed within Europe but actually uh, that was not case in the 1930s and uh, Czechoslovakia was of course not told to fight and resist the Germans in a complete opposite of what Britain and others were saying to Ukraine when the war started. And so uh, Robert Toombs posits that perhaps actually we have learnt from history that um, perhaps Hitler Europe could have been spared a five-year-long war if Czechoslovakia had been a, had been um, f- um, supported militarily in the same way that, uh, that, 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 that Ukraine has been. Another myth is about the strength of the Red Army. Up until now, there's been this belief that uh, the Red Army was really the most successful military force of the war, that it held not only held the German forces on the Eastern Front, but it then sort of stormed through uh, through its military and prowess, its tanks, but also the number of forces that it had. Now it would appear that actually the Russian power has been exaggerated, perhaps, for more than 70 years. Um, another myth is that the only reason that the kind of atrocities that the Russians committed in, in, in Germany at the end of the war um, was due to the atrocities committed by the Germans in the East... Um, it now would appear that there's actually a deeply ingrained um, culture within the Russian army that is one that is uh, willing to condone atrocities at the very highest level. Again, that is a myth that we are now leading to reassessments of of, of the Second World War. Um, and so, as I say, a lot of interesting um, commentary from him, a lot of echoes. But I say this, I think this fundamental point, just to reiterate what we were saying earlier, is that he says that in the 1930s and to some extent the early 1940s, Europe was divided. It, 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 Hitler's Reich seemed to offer um, a, a different model that was attractive. Democracy was treated much more sceptically in the West. Um, uh, you know, that, that in the same way that Putin has tried to have his Olympics and um, Hitler had done that in 1936 and the world had been wowed by what Abel he had been able to put on. So um, he had offered an alternative model for the world. That is not the case for Putin's Russia. The world looks on shocked and appalled, at least the Western world, on what has gone on. That was not the case in the 1930s. And so um, this is, I think, actually quite an uplifting piece that we are learning from history. And perhaps there are certain things that we can learn again from not only the 1940s, but from this period now, moving forward much longer term. So sorry for going on a little bit there, but I point people to read this fascinating piece by Robert Toombs in today's Telegraph newspaper, but also online. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox.
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.